1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
2: What would you like the power to do? Mobile
1: banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
2: The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest Crab Dystopia Edition that is a really bad David Attenborough. Uh,
0: I didn't even realize that's what that was. <laughs>
2: <laughs> nor, nor should you have. On today's show, Get Out is the debut film from Jordan Peele of Key and Peele fame. He wrote and directed this horror comedy about the black boyfriend of a white girlfriend, discovering the sinister truth of her seemingly racially enlightened family. And then the lights, the stars, the dresses, the wins, the losses, and of course, capital T, capital F, the flub. We have to do it, the Oscars. And finally, Planet Earth, the glorious high-def opus about our common mama and the biodiversity she supports, returns. It's on BBC America, and you can stream new episodes on Amazon and iTunes. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, Dana Stevens, uh, Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana.
3: Hey, Stephen.
2: Julia, before we dig in, uh, no doubt we have some business.
0: Yes, several pieces of business. Number one. We are coming to Washington, D.C. to do a live show on April 19th, and tickets are available for that live show at slate.com slash live. Please come out and see our show. We would be so delighted to see you. Uh, Number two, next week, next week's show is when we are discussing 1984. So if you have been wending your way through it or meaning to pick it up, you have another week to do so if you want to hear our discussion unspoilt or newly refreshed uh, with 1984 in your mind. And finally, our Slate Plus segment this week available to Slate Plus members is going to be a spoiler-rich appreciation of Get Out. We're talking about the movie in a regular segment, but the movie is so rich with interesting details, we thought it would be fun to stick around and dissect the ending and all of the little secrety bits we wouldn't be able to discuss in a normal segment. So if you are not yet a member of Slate Plus, now is a great time to join When you do, you get access to an ad-free version of our podcast feed, bonus segments every week, and you support Slate and the journalism that we do. You can join at slate.com slash cultureplus. All right, let's commence.
2: Get Out is the debut film from Jordan Peele, best known for the cunningly not post racial comedy show Key and Peele. Uh, he wrote and directed this, his first feature film. It tells the story of a young black man, played by Daniel Kaluuya, who is dating a young white woman, played by Allison Williams, who goes to meet her parents for the weekend. What follows is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner Meets meet the Parents, Meets Rosemary's Baby, Meets the Stepford Wives. But truthfully, it's too original. For me to put it this way, Get Out is, I have to say, it's a stunningly confident and strange debut film. I loved it. Can't wait to hear what you guys thought of it. But first, let's listen to a clip.
0: Yeah. And the clip we're about to hear is the scene where Chris meets the parents of Rose, the Allison Williams character, uh, and they're played by Bradley Whitford and Katherine Keener. So, how long has this been going on? This this
1: thing? (laughs) How long?
2: (laughs) Four months. Four months. Mm. uh five months actually she's right i'm wrong boy. better get used to saying that
0: i <laughs> uh, please i'm so sorry
2: oh yeah i'm sorry she's right i'm wrong <laughs> see I'm does he have an off button no. this is exhausting i know. i want to give you a tour can you, you like unpack first you want to unpack before the tour all right, well we're joined by uh, Aisha Harris who's a, a Slate Culture writer and host of the Slate podcast to Represent. Aisha, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks. I'm excited to talk about this movie. Very. <laughs> I'm
2: so excited to have you here to talk about it. I mean, I I scarcely even know where to begin asking you questions about it. Um but just tell me what tell, tell me what you thought of it. But what a remarkable debut. I mean, how many chainsaws can you throw in the air and juggle beautifully having never directed a feature length film before? What a movie
1: well i mean what's great about it is i think well jordan peele in an interview that i can't recall where it's from now but he said you know while talking about this film that key and peel was like a directing 300 different shorts short films and it's kind of accurate like if you watch any of his uh his sketches from key and peel which aired on comedy central for five seasons um there's so many different uh shorts that sort of mirror what we see in feature-length form with Get Out. Um, They've frequently parodied the horror movie genre and also used the horror movie genre to critique race. And I think what Peele is doing here with Get Out is just, like, expanding on those ideas in a way that's, like, even more... even sharper and even more astute and even scarier and Mm -hmm. i just think it's i really i went into this movie i'm a huge keen peel fan i went into it with very high expectations but expecting in a way to be disappointed and i came out thinking like this is a movie we are going to be talking about for years to come and if i was in film school this is probably going to be on like college syllabus syllabi uh for years to come. Well, you know, I walked into it
3: thinking, especially because Keanu got this criticism a lot, the movie that was not directed by, but written by Key and Peele, that was their first kind of cinematic endeavor. The main criticism I remember hearing of Key and Peele, which is a very common criticism of TV comics in their first movie, is that it was a bunch of sketches put together, right? That it, it lacked kind of structure and cohesion. And you could never say that about Get Out. I mean, uh-huh. it has this fable-like tautness to it. It's, its I think, an hour and 40 minutes long, but it feels almost like an hour-long episode of The Twilight Zone or something like that. It's extremely compact in its construction.
0: And everything in it is purposeful. I mean, I hate rewatching things. Like, no matter how much I love something, I almost never want to see it a second I know time. that. Huh. Don't like rewatching things at all. Like, I feel like I've only, I've got limited watching hours. I want to see something new. But I'm dying to go back and see this because in the days since I saw it, Every conversation I've had about it, every passing thought about it has elicited in me this little like aha moment, either an appreciation of some clue that was embedded earlier in the film or a deeper understanding of some scene and what it really meant. Uh, You know, I I think for those of you who want to be completely unspoiled, you can skip this segment and go see the movie. And there might be some delights to that. Like if you haven't seen the trailer and you think you want to see the movie, maybe just skip the segment and, and come back. The trailer level reveal is, you know uh black boyfriend white girlfriend she like doesn't hasn't revealed to her parents that her boyfriend is black before bringing him home for the weekend uh but it's
3: totally fine because they're so
0: <laughs> but it's totally fine they're not racist they're nice liberal parents it's they're going to be a little awkward and daddish but they're going to be fine and then in the trailer you see that like the household servants in the house a, the house has household servants. B, those servants are black. C, they act super weird and like dead-eyed and seem very like strange and stepford Um, And then, you know, I- in the trailer, you see there's a garden party with one black guest. And at some point, the black guest seems to crack and be like, get out. and Voila, that is the name of the movie. So you have the sense that all is not right at Catherine Keener's house.
2: Oh, so I love the movie. It's incredible. It clears however high you want to set the bar. It's almost surely going to um, clear it. Uh, Among the things that I really loved about it, Aisha, is that... a successful horror movie, I think, builds on. Uh, I mean, they all really have to build on a pre existing anxiety. Rosemary's Baby might be the classic example. You know, you, there's a degree of anxiety about having a child that that movie just, you know, t- gets at from the inside, but then explodes completely. This is about meeting uh, a, a new boyfriend or girlfriend's parents. To which obviously is added this other dimension, the racial dimension. I talk a little bit about how with that anxiety played completely straight and naturalistically out of that comes uh, the horror movie.
1: You, yeah, we talk about the the me the parents aspect and, and adding the racial lens to that. But the movie actually opens with uh, by playing on a different pre existing anxiety, uh, which is essentially being a black person walking around in a neighborhood that is not their own and in which there are mostly presumably mostly white people um and that fear that it plays off of and it opens with um a character played by LaKeith Stanfield he's walking around he doesn't know where he is it's not it's nighttime he's in a suburb and as soon as this white car starts to creep up alongside him he's like nope not today and starts to turn around and that plays into the pre-existing fear i think Um, that we all now have, especially in the wake of Trayvon Martin and the way in which that very directly sort sort of mirrors what happened that night where he was walking around in a Florida suburb in a gated community um, and was attacked. And the same thing happens to him. And so the way in which the movie kind of opens that up and just layers more of that on top with each scene that comes afterwards, I think is just really brilliant and is a great example of the way in which Get Out uses these horror movies tropes, but then subverts them through a racial lens, which we haven't always seen. Like, we don't usually see that.
0: Well, the other thing that it does really remarkably is set on two sets of racial anxieties at once, right? So the the racial anxiety of uh, black people, that they're going to be, the violence will be inflicted upon them at any moment for no reason, which, you know, is eternal and longstanding, but has become like part of national news and conversation in the wake of Trayvon Martin and Ferguson and other incidents over the last five years or so. And then the white anxiety about how racist you are and sort of the, the general challenging of the notion that like, that sense that, you know, being like a well-meaning white liberal is just like a fine way to exist in the world, this movie challenges also in a really amazing way. So uh, what starts as Bradley Whitford seeming like a cringeworthy dad turns into this whole family being a bunch of nefarious weirdos. Uh, and the the tension in the movie is that the Chris character... Is, has heightened anxiety compared to everyone around him because of his life experience of, you know, being reasonably anxious about the fate that might beha- befall him as a black man at any turn. And his, like, turned-up anxiety is then deployed against this family, which seems sort of bucolic and innocent at first and then just super fucking weird as the movie goes on. And the simultaneous ratcheting of those two anxieties is played so beautifully. It's just like a marvel to behold.
3: I would just add that that tension is diffused really nicely and in a really comic way by this character played by Lil Rel Howery, who who plays Rod, the, the best friend of Chris, who is taking care of Chris's dog while he's away at his girlfriend's parents' house. And uh, and they have these these phone calls in which essentially the, the friend, the Rod character, plays the part of the audience who's saying to a horror movie character, don't go in that room.
2: Bro, how are you not scared of this, man? Look, they could have made you do all types of stupid shit. they have you fucking barking like a dog,
3: Looking ridiculous, okay? Or I don't know if you know this, white people love making people sex slaves and shit.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure they're not a kinky sex family dog. Yeah, I think that what makes Rod such a great character is the way in which he serves as the sort of uh the voice in Chris's head about what he should be worried about. You're constantly being told as a black person that your anxieties and your fears are not valid or they're not real and they're all in your head. And the way in which, like, you know, I don't think it's spoiling anything because we know that this is like, it's not all in in his head. And Rod, to some extent, is correct. It's such a movie for our time because it is really about... Uh,
3: in a way, I mean, the the sort of racial truth that it reveals is, wait, things really are as bad as you think they might be. You know, they're worse. They're much worse. And even though it's played on a comic level, it, in fact, is a very politically astute movie.
0: Well, and Peel has talked about the idea that that the initial conceit of the movie, which was very much developed during the Obama administration, was just the lie of post-racial America, like the notion that, okay, we elected Obama, so everything's fine now, is obviously not true, as the news of uh, the last five years and particularly the last six months have shown um, and, you know, th- that in some ways a couple people have asked him, like, oh, is it weird for this movie to come out in Trump's America versus Obama's? But it feels but it feels even more pertinent in a way because it challenges the idea that, like, you know, the racism that's left is the the obvious kind, like people getting shot in the back and, and that getting captured on video or, you know, some some other people somewhere else who are racist and bad.
3: Which is also, I think, Peel said this in an interview, why he set this movie in a sort of vague, it's not really said where it is, right? But it's it's like a vaguely East Coasty. it feels like an East Coast liberal suburb. The movie was actually shot in Alabama, so it could easily have been set in Alabama, but he deliberately did not want to make it a red state situation. Well and it reads as
0: high wasp. Like as as uh I guess with Steve on the call, I can't really be our resident wasp, but like <laughs> it reads as high wasp. Like Alison Williams I loved your line in your review of the movie for us about what did you call her? Oh the basic she's Becky
1: the, Queen of the, the, basic the ultimate Beckys. basic Becky. Yeah, basically. Yes. She's basically the basic Becky, our foremost basic Becky of the millennial generation. Perfect
3: casting of her in that part. And yeah. Becky
1: Becky
0: being I mean just give a little of the etymology of Becky you know, which is which predates lemonade, right? But is the, yeah,
1: I mean, Becky's just your typical white girl. I don't really know it's how much like clueless it. white girl. Yeah, she likes. Yeah, she. You know, she likes Starbucks and black men. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's like one way to put it. Um, she's um,
3: she's wearing UGGs with no socks. She yeah. is like
1: contemplating
0: donuts, not at a Starbucks, but possibly at a Starbucks in the opening scene in the movie. I have to say, I think she's amazing in this movie too. uh, Like it plays against her image so uh, narrowly and she is so smart in the role.
3: You know, because we've been talking so much about the content and the casting and stuff, I wanted to just throw out a a quick word of praise for the look of this movie and the style of it. I mean, one thing that that Key and Peele didn't get to do as much as in Key and Peele, although they are great at creating sort of little mini visual worlds in their sketches, they didn't really get to explore Dream spaces and kind of interior psychological spaces as much, and the moments in which the Chris character undergoes hypnosis, which is pictured in this kind of absurdist way, where Catherine Keener, who's a psychiatrist, stirs her tea hypnotically, and the, the somehow the clinking of the spoon puts him into this spell. And at that moment, the movie goes into this world. That what I wrote down in my notes was uh, "under the skin," you know, those those scenes mm-hmm. in "Under the Skin," totally. where the real world becomes this sort of floating black space, and that's sort of the space that he's falling into. And you see whoever is hypnotizing him or whoever is sort of hovering over him at that moment in this kind of rectangular screen that's slowly receding into the interior of the of the image. And uh, and it's just it's very eerie and beautiful and a really interesting visual choice to make in a movie that could easily just be shot like a sitcom. I will say that my set of questions about this movie have to do with the very ending, which I know we're going to talk about in our in our spoiler segment. And I'm glad, Aisha, that you're you're sticking around for that, because there are a couple of things that I'm not sure I understood about the movie's last five minutes or so um but that's not a critique it's just a reason to see the movie again for me
2: terrific okay well the movie is get out from jordan peele written and directed by him it is a really it is kind of an astonishing uh debut feature uh we all loved it four thumbs way way up uh the politics and racial politics of it are as complex as the movie is uh, divertingly weird um so um please come to facebook.com slash culture fest and tell us what you uh, thought of it all right moving on Uh, all right. Well, moving on, Aisha. Thanks for uh, sticking around to talk about the Oscars. Um, I hardly have a formal introduction for this. I do wonder, wonder though, um, whether for how astonishing it was in the moment and how picked over it's been since, if the flub isn't the least important thing that happened at the Oscars. Sort of the gist of what you wrote.
1: Yeah. No. My biggest, my biggest concern when, when in the moment when it happened, or maybe after, because at first I was like, "Yay!" Um, was is this going to overshadow the fact that Moonlight won? And I think to some extent it did because everyone now seems to be talking about the way in which the producer, Jordan Horowitz of La La Land graciously and, and ever so heroically uh, <laughs> um, gave his, the the award to Moonlight after thinking he had won.
3: <laughs> there was that one outrageous Boston Globe column that claimed he's the hero of a generation. There were
1: a couple pla- yeah, Boston Globe uh, the Washington Post called him the truth teller we need in these times. The <laughs> <Which is like, laughs> bar for manners has gotten <laughs> very low. So, I mean he was, he was composed in a confusing moment. Yes. Fine. He, he did exactly what any decent human being should do. But yes, Moonlight the fact that it won even even if it was sort of robbed of the moment that it should have had which is hearing its name announced without having to, to deal with the La La Land producers already being up there um, it's just astonishing because this movie ma- it was made for 1.5 million it's the first um, the first movie that A24 has both produced and distributed before they were just distributors um, and it's a movie about a black gay boy and we've never seen an lgbt uh q movie win for best picture and we've also never seen a uh well i guess in the heat of the night is is the exception but we've never seen a besides that we've never seen a movie with black characters that is based on is not based on like a historical moment or whatever it's set in contemporary times it's not explicitly about racism and so for it to win best picture is just such a monumental feat that should completely overshadow the way in which it was announced that it won.
3: Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. The, the the unusualness of of the win, it would have. There's no question that it would have been a m- much more of a gasping, breathtaking moment for for it to win because of all those reasons you said, because it has an all black cast. I mean, you say that it's not about racism. I mean, there's not even a white person in the movie, barely even in the background.
1: You're right. And I yeah.
2: I mean there's another reason this is extraordinary, right? I mean, it was not expected to win. Uh it, it, La Lala Land was supposed to kind of cakewalk its way to, you know, possibly as many as eight or ten awards. Um and and furthermore, it's the Dana, it's the remarkable moment where what really arguably is the best, most beautiful, most daring, most true movie of the year one Best Picture.
3: Yeah, I saw right. lots of people saying that on social media afterward. It's a movie that that cinephiles love. You know, it's a movie that, although more people are going to see it now, not that many people have seen it. But, but audiences responded to it really strongly, too. And I remember in Movie Club when we were writing and talking about this movie, just saying that to me... Uh, one of the, the most uplifting things of the, the movie year was that this movie that had a completely black cast that was made for a, a low budget had the success it did, even in the limited release that it had. But it has made a lot, lot, lot less money than La La Land. And so this will also be great for the, the business fortunes. of the Yeah,
0: movie. it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about the, the towering achievement of just the movie that was believed by most people who love cinema to be the best movie winning is it its own achievement, separate from the Race and sexuality of the people featured in the film. Uh, I hear you. I think I just post about this was very smart. I think in some ways it would have been more glorious for Moonlight to just win and for Barry Jenkins to have his moment. On the other hand what a fucking great moment in an Oscars telecast and like it won't really like actually when people look back at the list of Oscar winners they won't necessarily all remember which was the year that it happened for and nothing interesting ever happens at the Oscars and I am pro-gaff like that was that was a a crazy compelling insane moment it gave you the feeling that something exciting could happen and you know I do really it seems like the La La Land and and, um, Moonlight folks have really been on the award circuit for the last three months together and do genuinely respect each other's movies and know each other as people and that the sort of uh, humanity of the La, La Land folks in in seating the stage and the graciousness of Barry Jenkins in, in acknowledging their work in his remarks. I mean, certainly there's a case for he shouldn't have to acknowledge anybody else's work in his remarks about his amazing movie that won and, and, and the historical moment. But um, on the theory of the Oscars are boring and it's better when they're interesting,
3: What a glorious Oscar moment. Well, I also have to say that I liked how that moment subverted this narrative that grew up during the Oscar race in which La La Land, which, as you guys know, I really like. I'm glad it didn't win Best Picture, but I really like the movie. That, that it sort of got cast as as Trump in a way. You know, it sort of became – it somehow became, uh, you know, symbolic of white supremacy or something like that. And certainly if it had swept the Oscars, which it seemed at, some, at one point like it was going to do, and after – you know, in those 25 seconds after the Best Picture announcement before the correction, the, you know, even as a big fan of La La Land, I had this feeling of like, oh, crap. You know, I mean, that's just not it, – it, it's not a – for the outcome of the year in which we elect a white supremacist, president of the United States, it's just not a good look for that to have swept the whole awards. So, so I completely understand that sort sort of symbolic pitting of the two movies against each other. But I really appreciate that the actual makers, crews and casts of those two movies didn't seem to play it in that way or to encourage the public to play it in that way. Yeah. But, you know, I was trying to think the rest of that night, like a lot of people, I think I I stayed up late that night because I was just wired after the Oscars. It was such a funny moment. It was such a weird moment. It was kind of fun to watch the story unroll bit by bit about how Price Waterhouse Cooper screwed the whole thing up. And there's a really good, we can link to it on our show page, there's a really good kind of TikTok of it in in The Hollywood Reporter, where essentially all the facts that are known about exactly how the wrong envelope got into Warren Beatty's hands are are reported. And it's, it's really interesting. But I think that some of the catharsis of that moment, the moment, of surprise in the moment of Jordan Horowitz holding up the envelope and saying, no, it's you guys, it's Moonlight, that in some way, even though I just went on this big speech saying, let's not equate, you know, La La Land with white supremacy, but it was just a moment in which a, a decision that seemed to be somehow Cosmically wrong was suddenly cosmically righted, and you know, just just somehow as a symbolic
1: catharsis that that was meaningful. I think uh, it reminded me of when the Cubs came back from like obscurity out of nowhere in the last what was it, twelfth inning? <laughs> no, no, con-
0: like when, when it's, it's at some point we're going to go back to having boring conclusions to national events, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and maybe in the case of elections we should want that, but uh, in the case of everything else, it's, there shouldn't have been a lot of uh surprise surprise endings lately. Um this so overshadows anything else about the night. Um and and it's been so hashed over at this point, maybe we don't need to go too much further. But I actually thought the night was sort of less explicitly political than I thought generally in terms of the speeches. It sort of seemed like everyone was waiting for everyone else to give their big uh, you know, powerful political speech, and the the sort of most explicit one was the speech that was read for Asghar Farhadi, the Iranian director who opted not to come um, in solidarity with other people from his country who uh, can no longer freely enter the United States. Um, and there were a few other explicit notes, but really the awards seemed like a more implicit rebuke to Trumpism in that more uh, there were more black winners than at any other. Ceremony ever. Um, lots of foreign people won awards. In who the awards went to, it felt like there was an embrace of internationalism and multiculturalism and um, sort of anti-Trump ethos. But there were a lot less celebrity soapbox moments than I thought.
3: It was. It's hard to know whether that, and that definitely seems true of the the way the evening was presented, and also just the choices that the Academy made. And I wonder how much of that is because of the reforms that they made after Oscars so white to diversify. And how much of it just had to do with people reacting to the year in politics. I mean, I have to say that one really painful moment for me that I think the producers could have easily avoided was why did they have Brie Larson present the award for best actor, knowing that Casey Affleck was one of the
1: favorites to win the award, right? I mean, well, I mean, that's the way it goes, right? Like the... Person who won Best Actress the year before presents always
3: presents Best yeah, Actress. Yeah, at ah. least for the last like
1: decade. Like... Dana, how do you
3: not know? That? <laughs> you know, me and the Oscars are like oil and water. I I never noticed that. I mean, I know that former winners come up and present awards, but I didn't know that you were locked into
1: a certain for category. for Best Actor and Best Actress supporting and supporting and, support. and supporting and su- yeah, they it's always you come back whoever won, you won the last ah, year. Now, granted, cool. they could have. You know, I I think if she felt like she could. She's in a difficult position. She can't say like I don't want to do it, but she could say I don't want to do it. Uh, yeah,
3: well, I mean, in last year's Oscars, after she won for Room, right? They had this. They had this moment when a bunch of sexual assault survivors that was came during on stage. Lady Gaga's
1: performance, right, 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 of you're that right. song. Yeah. And do you remember
3: that Brie individually hugged each one? And right. if you follow for her on Twitter too, you just see that she's a you know very committed activist. And maybe because of that movie, one of her big issues it is sexual assault and abuse. And uh, so, so to see her have to present that award to Casey Affleck, which if you notice, she did not applaud him. She did not smile when she, she read the him. envelope. Yeah. And was, just for clarity, he's
0: been accused of uh, sexual assault. Um, yeah. No, that was an awkward moment. Uh, to move along to equally important topics, I also just didn't care about any of the dresses. Did, did, oh, we, I thought we...
1: Janelle Monet looked amazing. Oh, she looked good. She was wearing like this futuristic looking black sparkly. There are lots of Oh, it was
3: so great with kind of like mesh fishnet shoulders and a strange gold headband. She was kind of this combination of steampunk and outer space or something. Mm -hmm. She looks great in everything. I mean, she's just such a great clothes wearer.
0: Yeah. Uh, Any other... Hi- dress highlights before we before we wrap it up?
3: Amy Adams looked pretty knockout. I mean, a lot of people had that really, really deep plunging neckline, which seems to be the new thing is just basically having your knockers half exposed. The contoured boots. But, uh, but she, she looked amazing, and I wanted her to look amazing because she really did get dissed by not being nominated for a rival, right? I mean, even if it was just a filler nomination and she wasn't going to win, if you're going to recognize that movie with seven nominations, at least put the star who carries the entire movie in the list. Mm-hmm. Steve, yeah. who had your favorite
2: look? All right, we can move on. All right. Justice most served, the moonlight win, most egregious win, least deserving, like, how did it go? How did this award go to this person?
3: You know, I, I, I basically after his speech, I would say Casey Affleck. I hated Casey Affleck's speech so much, coming on top of all these, you know, these accusations against him. Granted, like none of, none of this has been actually pursued in court yet. But I mean, I love Manchester by the Sea. He's incredible in it. I, I've never had much of a feeling about him as an actor before, but after this movie, I do really think he has chops as an actor. But just him. Shambling up there, first of all, looking like he has crumbs in his bed, basically, as, as was joked at, I believe, the Independent Spirit Awards. I'm not sure if the joke was about him, but some somebody was accused of looking as if they have crumbs in their bed. So he comes up looking like he's got crumbs in his bed and then proceeds to make this really rambling, self-centered speech. I, I was very turned off by him after that.
0: I actually was running to get a glass of water and didn't see his speech, which may affect how I feel about it. <laughs> his performance was amazing. Like, what those charges are very troubling. They have not been proved. Like, I thought his performance was better than Denzel's in Fences. I'm sorry. Like, Fences is not the greatest movie ever. And going, well, going and Denzel is incredible. And if Denzel had never won anything ever before, you know, like he's he deserves all the acting accolades that he has gotten. But like. That was a theater performance on the screen, and it was a, didn't quite land. And so much of the character in Manchester by the Sea, which was amazing, was established through the physicality of Casey Affleck. Like, I don't, I don't, like, to me, I think the Zootopia, like, Zootopia winning Best Animated over Moana is my... Most egregious. Like, Zootopia was fine and fun and we talked about it, but Sam Adams wrote a great post for us calling Zootopia the crash of animated movies (laughs) in that, like, it is about race, but the way in which it is about race is completely fucked up. Like, it sort of has the idea of having a harmonious modern lesson about racial profiling, but actually what it assumes underneath is... Like in applying it to predators and prey, it actually then does assert that there is a deep physiological difference and power imbalance between types of people slash creature. Anyway, it's fucked up. So that I, I, I would object more to that than to the victory for Casey.
3: Yeah. In fact, in fact, I have a more egregious one than that, because going in, I was not rooting for anyone in particular for best actor. I, I agree that Casey Affleck's incredible. So in a sense, yes, he deserved the award. It was the combination of his crassness in his speech and his lack of preparation and then Denzel crying in the audience and not a crying of like, I'm just so moved to be here. It was a crying of the like, this fucking sucks.
1: Well, also the fact that Casey Affleck, for the at least the second time, dragged Denzel into his speech because he did that at the Golden Globes, too, and was like, Denzel... And he just, like, doesn't really say anything. He's just like, Denzel. It's like, yeah, no, that, that award should be Denzel's. I'm sorry, I disagree. I <laughs> I, I, I love, I love, Man- well, love is a strong word. I really liked Manchester by the Sea, and I thought Casey Affleck's great. I thought every piece of it was great. I do think Denzel, you can say it's theatrical. I think he was giving one of the best performances he's he's ever given.
3: And he directed the movie, and he put it up on stage in yeah. order to direct it, and it's just been such a life's work for him. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say that I was sitting there rooting for Denzel, but after, yeah, the way things fell out, that kind of sucked. But, Steve, my one egregious one is going to be Silence, the movie we talked about last week, which I think deserved the Cinematography Award. That was the only thing it was up for. And La La Land ended up taking the Cinematography Award. Fine, I love La La Land.
1: It's gotten lots of recognition, but that was a moment when I just thought, come on, let, let's give this guy some recognition. I think the most offensive thing was the fact that Emma Stone won for best actress. Uh she was she was good, but to me that was not a groundbreaking performance. I didn't reveal anything new to me about her as a performer as an actress well that's
3: just the whole oscars love ingenues thing right i, know, I mean all gwyneth paltrow had to do for a few years there years there was blow her nose and she would get an oscar
0: right so well, and, it, and coming after brie larson winning last year who's similarly like of ingenue age but who gave a performance that was like devastating truly yeah. extraordinary i mean whatever I, I i've like issued enough la la shade on this show but um i agree i i that, that wasn't my
2: fave Okay, well, you're all wrong because the most egregious was Justin Hurwitz winning for best score for La La Land. It should have gone to Nick Pertow.
0: Oh, fuck. I can't (laughs) believe I didn't say
2: that. (laughs) Oh, sandbag. All right. Well, if ever there was a time to call out to listeners to come on to our Facebook page and give us grief, this would be it. Facebook.com slash CultureVest. Aisha, thank you so much for joining us for three segments. What a pleasure.
1: Thank you. It was fun.
0: We should also mention, of course, that Aisha's terrific podcast, Represent, has had multiple episodes this week, one about the Oscars and another about Get Out. So uh, you should tune in to her show to hear more yep. about the things we discussed. Thanks, Aisha. Thank you.
2: The follow up to the 11 part series, Planet Earth, is here, and it's only more of the magnamy and opusy same. Uh, maybe not quite as magnummy at six episodes instead of 11, but never fear. The show's narrated, of course, by the great old icon himself, David Attenborough. Looking down from two miles above the surface of the earth it is impossible not to be impressed by the sheer... That's grand- such a terrible impression. <laughs> she- sh- sheer grudge grand- uh, splendor. It's, it's more of the wonderful same. It takes a series of tight shots of animals interacting in the wild and edits them into slightly moralistic vignettes. Nevertheless, who cares? The earth is magnificent and so is this. Why don't we listen to a clip? For millions of
1: years, this remote speck of land has been ruled by Crabs. Their ancestors came from the sea, but most have now adopted a land-based existence. Given there are so many of them, they get along relatively harmoniously. They're the gardeners and caretakers of a tiny crab utopia. Once a year, they must all return to the sea to breed And the March of the Red Crabs is one of the greatest natural spectacles on Earth. There are
3: 50 million of them.
2: All right, well, Dana, I have to start with you. You love this uh, show. Uh, Tell us why.
3: I do. I love Planet Earth. I love David Attenborough. I know I foresee all of the the criticisms that will be made of this series and read a few of them as well, that it's not sort of sufficiently dire in its tone of alarm about the destruction of our planet, which we can talk about in a moment, uh, that it anthropomorphizes the animals too much. That's probably true, but one of the more charming elements of the show as well. And part of what I think makes it so appealing to children while being, you know, not talking down to them or being made for children in any way. um, What else is it accused of? Maybe of, of editing you know as documentaries always do of of editing footage together in a way that creates stories that might not have been there in the natural world for example there are moments when they're following these penguins they're called chin strap penguins i think they're on the galapagos somewhere no no they're in uh, they're in like a
0: volcanic island in the dark, right. in the Arctic Sea, in An the island, Antarctic
3: Sea. A pretty new island. It's called like Ceruguinia Ferug-
0: or something. That's not it. Right. Something like that. I
3: can't remember the place name, but it's basically a volcano with a million and a half penguins living on it. It's utterly insane. Beautiful part of the show. Um, But there's this moment that they follow the journey of this one father chinstrap penguin out to get fish for his family and then coming back through these dangerous waves and climbing up these rocks and I kept thinking as as I was watching it, this is an incredible story that's being constructed, but it can't possibly be that they followed one penguin. They must once in a while have used <laughs> another identical penguin doing the behavior that they wanted to get the father doing in order to to construct this story. And so all of that stuff is sort of, you know, behind the scenes and all, I guess, valid critiques that can be made. But all I can say is that the object that's laid before you when you watch Planet Earth is this incredibly lushly shot and a beautifully narrated kind of Valentine to the planet. And my ecological argument for it would be not that, you know, um, it's something that Scott Pruitt should sit down and watch so that he understands the threat the planet is under. That would be maybe an inconvenient truth or just reading the news, <laughs> the science news. Um, but what this is, is more a way to make you fall in love with the planet. I think part of why my daughter is such a fiercely committed environmentalist is that she grew up watching Planet Earth and just seeing what an amazing, amazing place it is that we live. We don't need to travel to another planet. We have aliens right here. The Komodo dragons portion in, oh the, in that island
1: section—it's—it's
3: it's like no monster movie, no kaiju, you know, fantasy could be more incredible than two three meter long Komodo dragons fighting over a piece I of like aquarium. that you've switched to the metric system for this segment yeah. Meters. I had never seen any of them
0: I'd never watched any of the first ones for some reason I don't I don't know what I was doing 10 years ago that I was not watching them but I just never I think I was living in an apartment with no TV actually um but I never saw them and sort of had them bookmarked as like eh, at some point I should look at that but I'm such a sucker for you know narrative um, and plots that I assumed that I didn't want it, it, it seems sort of like a stoner pastime to watch uh, planet earth as that's an the, adult that's
3: the reputation it got although you know you actually you can <clears throat> save money on drugs because you sort of feel stoned just watching it
0: yeah well so watching it for the first time in preparation for the segment i was astonished by how beautiful and mesmerizing they are to look at how incredibly action-packed they are like the rhythm that you think of or at least that i've thought of in my head for nature documentaries of like twitching grass cheetah lying in wait blah 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 boring for like 45 minutes and then action it's just like all action sequences like you you kind of get only the nature doc money shots and like none of the waiting around stuff but i but all of the thoughts that it caused me to have are stoner thoughts so i was not stoned while watching it but all of the thoughts i have to share with you and our readers are like that's what i'm saying Whoa, the stonage. earth is so amazing and like oh conservation is important and like you know, the Komodo dragons fight, I was like, maybe like our modern civilization is just helping us evade the fact that we're, you know, like the power struggle is what it's all about. (laughs) Like it turns you into like an Ev psych Mm -hmm. bullshit artist. Like I have nothing interesting to say, except that I found this super interesting to think about.
3: Oh, good. I'm so glad. I I was afraid you might come in with exactly the critiques I was just talking about of like, what is this bullshit? It's idealizing and it's anthropomorphizing. And I found myself
0: very defensive on behalf of the series when I was reading a bunch of articles about it afterwards. Daniel, our wonderful intern, had collected a whole bunch of fascinating stories about it. And there's all these negative reviews and critiques. It's so apolitical. these absurd narratives, like, um, you know, that that this storytelling totally neglects the environmental apocalypse and human's role in it. And I just thought all of those critics completely missed the fucking point. Like nobody <laughs> wants to be hectored at by Al Gore anymore. And watching this movie, I had more of a sense of um the the destruction and and, you know, havoc that. Human life is reeking on the wild. I mean, in general, I take a very pragmatic view of it of like, well, earth has been around for like I I tend to think in geological time about the planet and think we probably will ruin it for ourselves and everybody else who lives here now and then we'll all die and then some other set of creatures will grow up in the next Million or billion years, and I hope David Attenborough
3: is still around and able to talk he'll about he'll be the, <laughs> he'll <laughs> be <laughs> the <laughs> one guy who survives.
0: He'll be like the the valiant cockroach of our era.
3: I, I've said this before, but the idea that David Attenborough is mortal is just it's unbearable to me. i, I oh. that is one person that he just he can't leave the earth. he's too he loves it too much, yeah, but How so about,
2: that's your stoner insight like,
3: that <laughs> in general, I'm drawn to that long view,
0: and then just getting into the specifics of like, These eagles fighting over a deer carcass in the Alps or um, actually my very favorite piece of footage uh, that that I've seen so far was from the second episode about these Andean flamingos or these flamingos drawn to these salt ponds in the northern Andes. Maybe they're freshwater, I don't remember, but um, doing this like mating dance where they literally just look like these incredible ballerinas like they they hold their bodies completely parallel and do this kind of like waltzing back and forth while moving their black beaks and their pink heads rhythmically like it's just to I'm sorry, I have nothing to say. I sound like a fucking stoned
3: idiot. Believe me, when I watched the show, I watched it by myself, not even with my daughter. And I found myself doing my animal voice that I do. And the two of us see unbearably cute things like bear cubs sliding down snowy slopes together. And by the time it was over, I was speaking only in the animal voice. Oh, my
0: God. Steve, Steve, <laughs> br- bring us some bracing truth. Do you hate this or something? Could, like, help help me out.
2: Oh, my God. Are you kidding? No, this is this is you know, one long suck on the, on the vape pen. I mean, <laughs> I, I I had nothing but stoner thoughts too. I mean, the first is that ve- vegetarianism is really not natural, right? Like, <laughs> You know, I mean, what an uh, talk about nature, red in tooth and claw. I mean, it is just unremittingly like hostile and competitive environment. Um, also, but there's, like, there
3: are love scenes too in here, though. I think yes! I should say it's the albatross. Oh yes, no, the albatross absolutely. waiting for his monogamous oh. mate to come back, and it, they do a little dance when she comes back too—a little dance of greeting.
2: Oh my god. I mean, it definitely makes you feel that whatever else is mysterious about human consciousness, it is absolutely continuous with animal consciousness. I mean, it, it nothing has ever ma- made me feel so confident that I was a, you know, naturally derived, biologically rooted, uh, evolutionarily produced creature you know, uh, you know, a result of nothing other than the blind processes of nature, which also produced all this panoply of incredible, you know, creatures. Um, so, um, no, I, I'm afraid I can't draw us out of the sort of stoner reverie that we're all having about it. Um, I also don't care that much about. I mean, to whatever degree they have to craft, craft craftily edit it in the service of anthropomorphism and, and narrative, like I, I kind of. I'm willing to go along with it because it can't be that much. I mean, it can't be so much that they're radically falsifying what the encounters of these animals are like. I mean, you can't you can't say to a group of snakes and a Komodo dragon, okay, back to one. <laughs> You know. <laughs> a
3: clapboard in front of the snake. That,
2: oh, that was the
0: seagoing iguana, not the Komodo dragon.
3: Oh,
2: that okay, is an whatever, unbelievable
3: but... scene in islands, too. These it... little baby iguanas trying to get to the sea before an army of snakes capture them. I mean, it's absolutely if you're if you have a snake phobia, I don't at all, but it would be really, really rough to get through that scene. It...
2: Yeah, I mean you could you could convince me that he doesn't really want to give her the rose at the final ceremony on The Bachelor, and some <laughs> producer told him to do it. I don't think you've talked those snakes into like, hey, have you ever tried, you know, maybe if six of you tried to get one of those uh, little baby blizzards? I didn't
3: come to the Galapagos to make friends. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't come to the planet to make friends. It's like the theme of the show.
2: I love it. I'll give you my giant stoner thought, which is that it did, it made me think that consciousness is immanent in the universe. It's an it's a, it's a implied is what? property.
3: Yeah, I didn't get the key word in that. It's a what
2: in I, the universe? Immanent. Oh, imminent. No, immanent, right?
3: Yeah, I don't I've never heard anyone say it immanent. Daniel, oh, really? break this well, fight. To- Let's battle like <laughs> Komodo
2: dragons over the pronunciation of this word. It means that it's in, inherent in even if not manifested in all instances, mm-hmm. right? So it, so in other words, even before there were conscious beings and even before there were human beings, there was this immanent property in the universe that made consciousness naturally a part of it. like It's just a feature of all complex systems, but when they get um, complex and integrated systems, but when they get sufficiently compl- complex uh, and integrated, they're essentially conscious, right? And we're, our brain is the most complex and integrated of all systems. Therefore, it's totally conscious, self-conscious, and rational. That was my stoner thought. That is what happens when <laughs> I smoke too much pot. I
0: don't think I'm stoned enough to get that thought. So you're saying that it just made you feel like animals had feelings before we do? No, that's not what you're saying. Mm,
2: it just made me feel like all things are continuous with all things, man. And you're like fucking <laughs> harsh on me now just for believing that. According to Google, it's imminent? imminent? Imminent. Imminent. Hot damn. But how is that not different from imminent?
0: That's the problem. It, you have, that's why nobody ever says that word out loud. <laughs> <laughs> now, Steve, exactly you're like the, the first person in recorded history <laughs> to try saying that word out loud.
3: <laughs> so maybe you just invented the pronunciation.
2: Do you want to uh, just wrap rap there, Steve? <laughs> all right well ben apparently is not enough of this segment <laughs> all right the show's planet earth uh part two and um i found it streaming on uh, amazon but there are various places to find it including i think on bbc america it is terrific you should check it out all right well now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse day na. what do you have
3: Stephen, my endorsement was inspired this week by uh, one of the reviews of Planet Earth that we read in our prep. The New York Times review of the New Planet Earth series by, by Neil Genslinger contains the patently false statement you don't want to learn too much about how the film was made. And later on he says, never mind the behind the scenes stuff, just enjoy the view. So I happen to strongly disagree with this. I'm a huge fan of David Attenborough, as we discussed in the segment, and of the first Planet Earth series which we own on DVD. And the DVD extras on that first Planet Earth series are fantastic. Every one of them. There's a little making of featurette called Planet Earth Diaries that goes along with each episode and uh, that used to be my daughter's favorite part to watch. Can we please stay up and watch the extras where you see these incredible cameramen. They're basically the world's greatest nature photographers. So they're all you know incredibly outdoorsy and tough, and they're risking their lives to get these beautiful shots and then doing talking head interviews to the camera about what was challenging, about getting a certain shot or how long they had to wait for a certain animal to perform whatever behavior they were waiting for. And to me, it really made the show richer and much more interesting to see what happened behind the scenes, plus that you just get to know all these, these characters that are quite endearing, all these, these nature nuts and hot air balloonists and whatnot. So the Planet Earth Diaries are all available for the first series of Planet Earth on iTunes for $5. You can buy them as a package and, uh, and watch them. Each one's about 10 or 15 minutes long, and they're just lots of fun from every point of view. Watch the Planet Earth Diary for the caves episode in the first series in which they go into some of the world's deepest caves. They see amazing stalagmites and stalactites. They look at the creatures that live inside the caves. But the making of is just unbelievable because there's a long segment where all of these cameramen are perched on top of a huge mountain of bat guano (laughs) waiting for these cockroaches to come and do some, I don't know, kind of yearly migration or something. And they're basically talking to the camera about this is my job right now, sitting on top of a giant pile of bat shit waiting for cockroaches (laughs) to pour Horror over me it's unbelievable it's good stuff so planet earth diaries on itunes
2: oh fantastic all right this week i'm just gonna suck it up i'm gonna do it play down to my uh own worst uh self fabricated <laughs> caricature is, this is your
3: gamelan right
2: this is my gamelan ryan adams is my gamelan Dana stevens <laughs> but the but the truth is greatness transcends even some people's desire to please others and uh If you listen, I defy anyone to listen to Live at Carnegie Hall, uh, which came out in 2015. He played two nights at Carnegie Hall, Ryan Adams, an acoustic guitar, a microphone, and however many adoring fans they packed in there. It's an extraordinary record. It really is a great record. It's just been uh, playing on my car stereo on loop for a couple of weeks now, and the truth is he's just... He uses all of what God gave him, right? Which is, you know, kind of affable brunette good looks, a nice Graham Parsons-style croon, um, and pretty much, you know, the basic building blocks of songwriting as inherited from Bob Dylan. And I wouldn't say that he makes anything new. You know, if you have to make some argument as as to historical importance, but fuck historical importance. Sometimes things are just intrinsically beautiful and beautifully crafted and well done he's just a great songwriter and and personally i think when you put him alone with a guitar a lot of songs that don't land for me at all in the studio version i mean a a good a good example being the song i love you i love you new york which i think on the studio version is just a kind of a you know juiced up hopped up dud you know when he does it alone with the guitar it's just the most wonderful sort of beautiful song I mean, anyway there are all these cliches about who he is and what he is throw them aside the guy's just a tremendously gifted songwriter uh, songs like halloween uh off broadway come pick me up obviously he's a classic i mean these are just, just great great songwriting so highly recommended live at carnegie hall by ryan adams oh that's oh, that, that was
3: not a hard sell for me i love ryan adams we've talked about him before and we've wanted to do one of his songs before maybe one day steve you and i will do come pick me up together
2: Julia, what do you have?
3: I actually want to re-endorse a
0: collection of books that I have endorsed before, but they are the thing with which I have been most culturally entranced for the last couple weeks, which is what I usually try to endorse, and they're such a great fit for Planet Earth if you're really digging that show. The books are by uh, an author and artist called David Peters, and the three that we have are called Strange Creatures, Giants and then dinosaurs and other early reptiles and they have very detailed scale drawings of amazing creatures from all periods of the earth and then pretty detailed scientific descriptions of like what we know about these creatures and how they fit into different you know types and taxonomic understanding of, of how critters and creatures are related. And when I first looked at them with my kids, we would just look at the pictures and read the names. But now they're into reading them in order and really understanding the science. And it's a funny thing about reading cutting-edge nineteen ninety science in 2017 is that I kind of have been having to explain to my kids the scientific process as we read the books because we'll read about what was known in the 90s. And I will point out that we don't know if that's still what the scientific understanding is reading these books and watching Planet Earth makes me want us to just like get a random paleontologist on the show and just grill them like there's so many interesting assumptions that are made I promise we won't actually do this guys but um what
3: we don't get a paleontologist <laughs>
0: well the peg for it is like a 20 year old <laughs> book that I'm reading with my children it seems a little thin but you know so so one interesting example is we've been reading about the Stomatosuchus the Stomatosuchus is uh, a crocodile like figure prehistoric figure that seemed to only have teeth on its top jaw. And the bottom jaw was kind of big and and bulbous and humpback whaley. And the theory is that they would scoop up big clumps of water and then kind of surface and turn over on their backs and all the water would drain out through the teeth and they would catch whatever small critters were living in the body of water where they were. But then it says, fascinatingly, that only one skeleton of this creature was ever found in northern Africa around the turn of the 20th century. And then That skeleton was destroyed in a museum in Munich during Allied bombing, which, like, suddenly I'm having to, like, either allied or explain to my children. And my son has become obsessed with the idea of this lost single skeleton of the stomatosuchus. And I'm, like, dying to find a paleontologist and be like, is this legit? Like, do we even know that they really found this, you know, before the 1940s skeleton? Like, how do we do we really know what we think we know, like the scientists that they were using in the 30s to make the assumptions they were making about the way the stomatosuchus fed? Do we still think that would be true even if we still had this skeleton? Does it mean anything that nobody's found more skeletons of this type of creature? Like, I've become obsessed with ways of paleontological knowing, basically, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm teaching my children to be obsessed with it as well. And we keep interrupting the book to, like, look things up. So anyway, it it these books are incredible if you have kids who are nerdy and into biology at all, check them out on Amazon, see if you can find some old used copies. It's such a such a neat, neat set of books. Because the books are both out of print, you can also download PDFs of a couple of them on his website. So again, his name is David Peters, and uh, I highly, highly recommend these books.
2: All right. Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. You can check out an entire roster of shows at panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. Our theme song is by Oscar nominated composer Nick Bertel, who was Always fucking robbed. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. We'll see you next week.
3: Always love you, though, New York.
2: New
1: York, New York.